It's never easy to see a child experiencing pain, sadness, even loss. But it's those experiences that can help them learn how to be emotionally healthy adults, if they have the right tools. In this episode, we speak with one psychologist about how to talk to children about loss, as well as the importance of mindfulness and other self-regulation techniques as they attempt to manage stress and other day-to-day challenges. I'm Audrey Hamilton, and this is Speaking of Psychology. Bonnie Zucker is a licensed clinical psychologist. She has a private practice in Rockville, Maryland, where she works with young children, teens, and their families. She can often be found out in her community at schools and talking with parents about how to help children manage stress and everyday challenges. She's the author of several books, including Anxiety-Free Kids and Take Control of OCD, The Ultimate Guide for Kids with OCD. Her latest book is called Something Very Sad Happened, A Toddler's Guide to Understanding Death, published by Imagination Press. Welcome, Dr. Zucker. Thank you so much for having me. I want to start with your latest book because I think this is something many parents struggle with, you know, talking with your kids about death at any age, really, but particularly very, very young children. What made made you want to write this book and what is it about? Thank you. Um, so actually, I was personally motivated, unlike my other books, which um, the, my clinical experience developed the concepts. For this, um, about six years ago, my mother passed away, and my son, who is now eight, um, was two at the time. And my go-to was to find a book for him. And I went to the bookstore. I could not find a book written on death for two- and three-year-olds. They had a really good one called I Miss You that was for ages four and up which I did buy and simplified for him. But I remember at the time, uh, in the midst of my grief, thinking I have got to write a book for kids at this age because at two and three, parents are in the habit of reading every night to their kids. And usually by the age of two or three, kids can identify with books. It's a great way of teaching them something. And also for grief, it allows them to go back and rehear over and over the things that are important for them to learn about it. Um, similarly, the developmental understanding for a two and three year old, it's very different than someone who's four or five or older. I wrote it in a language that was designed for the developmental understanding of a two and three year old child. So what happens in the book? So what happens in the book, it's actually um, the illustrator made this book. I mean, people, I show them the book and they say, wow, this looks amazing. I said, I know, doesn't it? And really, I'm, I'm not speaking of my work. I'm speaking of the <laughs> illustrations, which just express the story so beautifully. They're really, um, she was very sensitive in her approach, um, even the expressions of the mother and the little boy in the book. So what happens is um, the mom and the child, who, again, looks like a three-year-old boy, are sitting down and um, the mother explains that something very sad has happened, grandma died. And I wrote the book with the term, with the words grandma and the pronouns she and her coded in red. 
so that the re you said the right exactly so it can be changed so the reader who should prepare in advance to read this book to the child by reading it once themselves Mm -hmm. can be cued to change it let's say it's a father who died or an uncle that it could be switched to um, something very sad happened uncle so-and-so died he um, and and then they would be able to to personalize it so it makes sense for the child Um, and so the boy and the mom go through sort of these pages of emotions feeling sad you might see your mom feel sad you might feel angry you might see your mom feel angry and um, and what was amazing about the illustrations is it actually goes from lighter toned colors to more vibrant colors as the book progresses and then toward the end of the book it talks about how we can remember grandma we can look at pictures we can um, hear talk talk about her listen to stories about her and then the very last line of the book is love cannot die you know love never dies and so that's and it's a very vibrant, colorful page, the last couple of, you know, last two pages. I, I know that you work with um, families and, and also you're, you have children yourself, so you, you have your personal experiences. But as a, as a therapist, as a psychologist, um, you know, I'm sure parents are always worried about saying the wrong thing. You know, definitely want to, or further confusing the child. So is there anything that um, people or adults should not say to children when they're dealing with death? It's a great question. And I do think that, you know, while we want to just be as authentic as possible in our parenting, there are times when you have to, to limit what you say. Um, and, and mostly when it comes to conversations about death, I think for a young child, you have to be very clear and planned about what you want to say. Um, you want to avoid terms like sleep or long sleep. Um, you don't want to say when someone dies, it's like they're sleeping. Um, because it's not like they're sleeping, they're not going to wake up. And um, for the child uh, at this age, they don't understand so much the irreversibility of death. So we want to be very clear in that message. And we also don't want to make them anxious about sleep uh, because that's something, right, I don't want to go to sleep (laughs) if it's going to be like death. Um, You know, and also we really want to be sensitive to not telling them what to feel. So we don't want to say things like, you know, you can feel happy now because the person is no longer in pain. Um, That's not going to make sense to them. That's going to further confuse them, particularly when they're watching people go through, their family members go through a loss and they're sad a lot. Um, And also if it's a suicide or a homicide, I, I really recommend in those times to not be authentic and not say so-and-so killed themselves or so-and-so was killed. I think you have to um, essentially lie to the child um, and because it's too complex, they can't understand it. And I think you just have to say things that, um, you know, basically mislead the understanding of how they died. Mm -hmm. And then when the child is older, you can be more honest with them. And then one final point is really, I do think it's important to not encourage the child to move on too much or to tell them that we don't want to talk about this anymore. Um, as, as shocking as that might sound to say to a child, I've actually had this happen a couple of times. Um, one was with a foster child I was working with whose biological mom had died and then he was adopted by the foster family and they cued him, uh, this is your family now, we don't need to talk about you know your your birth family um yet in the therapy room with me he was really not ready to move on and so i think we just have to trust kids they do a really good job when it comes to to being authentic to their feelings and navigating their emotions and we want to take their lead and figure out what they bring to the table in terms of their emotions and have you know sort of fundamental respect for their process 
I want to switch gears a little bit and talk a little bit about uh, the mind-body connection with kids. You see a lot of schools now are focusing on this. Um, for example, my own daughter's kindergarten classroom, they've started incorporating mindfulness practices in the classroom, which I find really interesting um, and you know that she finds interesting as well. How do these types of programs and practices work and what does the research tell us about the benefits? That's a great question and I'm thrilled that your daughter's kindergarten class is doing this because I, I find overall um, that when it happens in the school, it starts happening at home too because kids come home and, and they want to do these kinds of practices. So um, we know there's a very strong mind-body connection and we know, um, and the research, there's really good research done by Herbert Benson who's one of the first to really write about anxiety um, in a popular way. And he wrote this book a couple years back called Relaxation Revolution, which summarizes his findings um, through um, studies on mind-body practices. And by the way, those mind-body practices include things like meditation and yoga and um, you know listening to certain chants um, and music. And what they found, and they did this really amazing study with over 2,000 um, genes that they looked at in these experienced mind-body practitioners. And when you when you think about genes, you think about are you genetically predisposed to something? So um, I may have a genetic predisposition to something like lung cancer, um, but that gene never gets switched on if I don't smoke, if I exercise, if I eat well. Um, and so a gene doesn't mean you will have it. Instead, you want to look at the conditions that turn a gene on or turn a gene or don't don't turn the switch on. So um, they found that these genes in these mind-body practitioners, um, especially ones associated with cardiac problems and oxidative stress, were not expressed in the same way um, as in the genes of the inexperienced practitioners. So this is sort of remarkable evidence that shows that when you do things like mindfulness and relaxation training and yoga, that you are setting your body up to not express certain genes that could cause a lot of illness and disease in people. And the idea of kids learning this, especially when we add in the different environment that kids these days are growing up in with technology, um, while we love our phones, uh, and, and some of us love them more than others, um, we really um, are, are creating an entirely different experience for kids these days. Um, and, and, and in fact, some people even say that when kids are using phones a lot and they're switching between topics um, quickly, that it could encourage some inattentive behavior. And the idea of having this mindfulness to rely on, to clear your mind, to enter into a thoughtless state, and to really align your mind and body in a very positive way, um, I would view it as preventative medicine. How do you know if your child or children would benefit from relaction and self-regulation techniques? I mean, argument can be made that all children should be that's the argument going I would make, this, of course, but, right? <laughs> but how do you go about finding the best program? Yes, uh, that's an excellent point. Um, my my goal is for kids to be working on this at home with their families, um, and and I find in my work with families that parents are just as happy to be doing it as kids are, and. I essentially think all kids need to learn how to do calm breathing and one nostril breathing, um, which is where you close one nostril and you close your mouth and you breathe in very slowly in and out through the other nostril. Usually you breathe in for seven and out for nine, something like that. And you do it for several minutes until you get really relaxed. Um, but there are all these apps now where parents can help their children learn how to relax. For example, um, Calm, which is an app, it's calm.com, C-A-L-M. 
they have an amazing sleep, bedtime stories um, part of the app, which that's part of the app is free and part of it you have to pay for. Um, and the bedtime stories, unfortunately, is something you have to pay for. But I've had kids who've had a lot of trouble relaxing before bed and they listen to these stories. There's one um, where the, the man's voice is like this. And I mean, you almost want to fall asleep the, the second thing, he yeah. starts talking. And, um, and of course, that's one way to use it. Another way is not at bedtime, but for them to really learn how to relax and how to decompress. And what I suggest is getting on, um, you know, getting on your phone and looking at the different ones. I have a list in my head that I often recommend. Insight Timer is a really good one. Um, Budify is another one. And and again, the calm is excellent. And there's also CBT tools for youth that has a lot of tools on there. And so the idea is to take action. So it, the, the specifics of it are not as important as the practice of it in the beginning. So the goal in the beginning is to say, hey, we need to carve out some time to unwind um, where we're not thinking, where we're suspending our thinking, we're getting into our bodies, we're learning how to do some awareness. I have a family, they watch YouTube videos of, um, of people doing yoga mm. for 10, 15 minutes after, um, well, they, they have this routine where they eat much earlier um, in the day and then they go like a little bit on a walk and then they come back and they do these yoga poses. Um, but I think the idea is for parents to make time for it. Mm-hmm. And then once they're doing it, then they can really refine what kinds of things their child likes and benefits from. Well, Dr. Zucker, thank you so much for joining us today. This was really helpful. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for listening. If you would like more information on the topics we discussed, or if you would like to hear more episodes, please go to our website at speakingofpsychology.org. With the American Psychological Association Speaking of Psychology, I'm Audrey Hamilton.